welcome to the Property Portfolio Podcast with Mark Stokes and Nigel Green. Every week we inspire and guide you towards success in the world of property development, mentorship and fundraising. Before we jump into today's episode, a reminder to join us at equacademy.co.uk where you can gain free access to hundreds of videos and templates to help you on your property development journey. And a very warm welcome to the next episode of Property Portfolio Podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined by a good friend of ours in the industry and a personal friend, Mr. Michael Primrose of the Property Finance Collective. Hi, Michael. Morning, Mark. You're right. Very well indeed. Thank you. Very well. So we've got a long-standing relationship and uh, we deal with lots of different transactions between us, but not every one of our listeners will will know you as well as we know each other. So could you just uh, start by just explaining who you are and how you best serve people? Yeah, so my name is Mark Primrose. Uh, I'm the owner of the Property Finance Collective. Uh, so I initially started off uh, as the Property Finance Guy about, what are we now, nearly three years ago now. That's flown by. Um, so I initially started off as a property finance guy, uh, one-man band, uh, and, and very, very quickly became a two-man band, three-man band, four-man band, and very quickly built up quite a decent team and um, built up a team that was majority female and still remains female um, and was informed pretty quickly that probably being called the property finance guy uh, with a team that was about 75% women probably wasn't ideal, um, and they were trying to broker deals, and the end of their email said, at the property finance guy so we we quickly rebranded to the collective which we felt better served what we are which is a collective of, of brokers and quite a decent sized team now that uh, essentially we are there to broker development finance bridging finance commercial mortgages um and i suppose the the thing that we well actually our, our newest tagline is uh, creative deals need creative finance and that's kind of what we sell ourselves on is that ability to finance a creative deal uh, whether it be a creative deal structure or whether it be just something complicated. We don't do vanilla deals. That's kind of, that's our thing. We just don't do vanilla deals. Um, there's 60,000, 70,000 other mortgage brokers in the country who do vanilla deals. Um, so we try and niche ourselves into that complicated deal structure, first-time developer, first-time investor, that kind of space that people just don't serve. Um, and for me, it's the most rewarding space as well because uh, over the past four years, I've worked with people who have gone from their first buy to let all the way through to developments of 40, 50 flats. Um, and that actually is a real life client at the minute. He's, he's on, I think, his sixth development already. Um, and it's been incredible seeing that journey all the way through from fresh or just do, do a little single let flip all the way through to now really decent sized developments um, and going from making 20, 30 grand on a flip to making sort of one to two million pounds profit on a, a development of that size. Um, so, yeah, when people ask who I am, that's, that's the yeah. spiel. Well, well talking of a, a journey, you know, a handsome young chap like yourself, um, you know, but also owning a well-established business, take us back to, to the time when you first started the, the business. What was the genesis of that business? You were, you were at a, a young age, I'm guessing, at that time. Um, so... Just talk through the, the challenges of starting up a, a brokerage and getting to that level of credibility that you have now in the marketplace. I, I'm always intrigued by the, the growth of businesses. Yeah, so for me, I, I had both personal and business challenges um, when we set up the property finance guys. So 
I started in commercial finance about four and a half years ago when my first daughter was born. Um, I'd just been made redundant, having worked at, uh, for a conveyancing firm. Um, I'd gone home, said to the wife, I've been made redundant. And then she politely informed me that she was pregnant. Um, and at that point went, right, okay, I need to go and find a job fairly quickly. Uh, so sort of jumped into the first thing that was available. I had no interest in finance. I'd never wanted to work in finance or anything like that, but I had a keen passion for property. I'd been a conveyancer, I'd been an estate agent. Um, so I, I went and found a job and ended up uh, working for a commercial broker, uh, but on the business side. So we were working on business finance. Um, but one of the things that I quickly did was kind of develop the product base so that actually we them working in property. Um, did that for about a year and a half uh, working for them, developing their business, and very quickly realized that at that point I was, I think, just about to come up to my 24th birthday um, and sort of thought, I'm, I'm building this for somebody else. Um, so left there, kind of had in my head that I wanted to go and be a property developer. Um, I didn't really have any plans to build a brokerage. Um, partnered up with a couple of other developers. We were looking at some development stuff. Um, and it kind of developed that we'd go, okay, well, actually, while we're doing the property development stuff, let's actually look at kind of helping people broker the finance as well because we've kind of got that skill set. Um, unfortunately, that was probably the worst JV I've ever uh, gotten into. Uh, it, I think I lost about 25 grand uh, and it, it was it was pretty bad. I mean, we came out of it, we lost the house, we lost the cars. Um, literally, it was to the point where uh, we had the land that we were in rented at that point. Uh, we had the landlord on the driveway going, give me the keys, <laughs> hand the keys over. Uh, and we had the mother-in-law on the driveway sort of trying to write checks as quick as she could come. Like, come on, just, you've got to stay put for a little bit longer. Um, so it, it was pretty bad. And, and not a lot of people have, have seen that element of, of the journey. Um, and that happened in sort of July to, it's probably July to October of 2018, that must have been. Um, so I just turned 24. Uh, my wife had just given birth to our second child um, because when I went and told her that I'd left where I was working and I wanted to kind of set up on my own, uh, she then again told me that she was pregnant. So kind of, it was only over a nine-month period that uh, this JV had lasted and kind of ripped our lives apart. Uh, so our second daughter was born. We stood trying to save cars, houses, everything else. Um, so it got to kind of the end of October of 2018. And I was due to give a talk, uh, I think it was in Leeds, um, and I got introduced on stage as the property finance guy. Uh, and at this point, I didn't really have a brokerage. Um, I did kind of obviously come out of the back of this horrendous JV. I was borrowing money left, right and centre to kind of try and just get to Leeds, really. Uh, got there and thought, what, what am I doing? And then, anyway, so I got introduced on stage as the property finance guy. And I thought, there's a, there's a ring to this. I thought I can do something with this. And it was just that light bulb that went off. And I remember I went home, it was probably about one, two o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I'm sat there with my wife at, at the kitchen table and we said, right, we've got to do something. Either we're going to have to go and get a job, which I was already, I think at that point, I was driving cars for Volkswagen to try and keep the lights on and stuff like that. Um, so at that point, it was like, right, okay, let's set the property finance guy. So those were kind of the personal issues we had in setting the company up. Uh, we were very lucky that when we set up the company, I kind of, there was a few people that I think had seen it on social media and it kind of latched to us pretty quickly as okay, yeah, let's let's give you a go. Um, so we did manage to bring some revenue in kind of fairly quickly. Um, but my biggest business challenge was the fact I was a 24-year-old. I was the youngest at that point, the youngest owner of a commercial finance brokerage in the UK. Um, I think actually even today at 27, I think I'm probably uh am I 27 or am I 26? 
I'm 26. At 26, I'm still the youngest. I mean, it's because I'm about to turn 27. I'm losing track of days. Uh, but I'm still, I think, I believe, the youngest owner of a commercial brokerage still. Um, but at 24, you're talking to developers who are notoriously in their 40s, 50s, 60s. They're used to dealing with the banks. They're used to dealing with people suited and booted. And and here was me with the property finance guy, which uh, <laughs> for those of you that don't know, for those of you on the video, um, right, the logo, um, that was the logo was the property finance guy. It was a quite a cartoonified uh, logo. So I was turning up at developers who were building 20, 30 unit developments and kind of rocking this big cartoon logo. Um, and it, it was building that credibility. But the thing is, once I got in front of people, they kind of understood, actually, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's passionate about it. And actually, he can help us. Um, so for the first six months to a year, it was, it was just about breaking down that barrier of, actually, I'm not too young to do this. Um, and as soon as we got past that, then yeah, the, the business kind of just exploded from there, really. So that was overcoming the credibility with with your client base, with the uh, the, the developers. Um, did you have similar challenges working with the the funding community? It was quite an interesting one actually, because the the funding community is made up of what they call the old boys club, um, and it, it is exactly that. It is an old boys club, and they're all of a certain age, of a certain demographic shall we say um it's it yeah it very very old school um so one of the biggest challenges was breaking into that community of of guys who've known each other for 20 30 years uh being that much younger and everything else but uh, one thing which kind of stood us in good stead was one of the uh kind of governing bodies that we have so we've got a couple of governing bodies within commercial finance one is the nacfb which is the national association of commercial finance brokers uh, and the other one is the FIBA, which is uh, the Financial Intermediaries and Broker Association. Um, and I was very lucky that the guy called Adam, who runs at the FIBA, uh, approached me and said, look, you're 25, I think I was at that point. Um, everyone else who sits on our executive committee is flipped around the other way and probably start at 52. Um, I need someone with a bit of young blood to come and help out. Um, so he sat us on the board and kind of from that moment, it, it changed everything really in terms of getting into that lender space um, and also around sort of over the last two years there's been a big push from sort of journalism within commercial finance. we've got certain um like every industry has we've got all the magazines and everything else um and a lot of the magazines and things were starting to push for more females within the industry um, and we have this within property don't we as well it's kind of even within property development you've got the old boys club and uh, more and more female developers trying to break down those barriers to get in. And it was the same with lending as well. Um, and we've seen over the last two years a huge push towards younger members of boards of lenders, newer lenders being set up, more females within those higher power positions. And it's been phenomenal because, uh, again, that's had quite a good impact for us as well because we are a predominantly female team. Um, so it's allowed us to kind of grow with the industry as well. Um, so we're, I feel like we're kind of ahead of the curve a little bit um, with all of that. So we've, we've managed to integrate ourselves finally, properly within that kind of lender community. Um, and yeah, we've built some some phenomenal relationships, most of them around the golf course. Fine place to, to strike deals. Lovely. Where the, where the my golf clubs don't work very well. 
<laughs> well, I still blame you for the fact that I've got new golf clubs. <laughs> so let's look at some of the the deal structures then that that you do. I mean, we've just uh, we've just completed a deal, and, and thank you very much for for your support over the last uh, few months as we as we close that deal. So, what would you say the most most frequent deal structure that you come across um, is in, in in commercial and development finance? Yeah, so within this, I kind of want to avoid uh, talking about, obviously, the, the one that we see the most is just kind of the usual developer purchasing a piece of land and, and kind of doing it like that. Um, but the most frequent structure that we're seeing now in terms of the more creative stuff is is actually around option agreements. Um, and I've been a huge uh, option agreement advocate for probably the last 18 months, um, trying to educate people as much as possible around option agreements and also lease options. Um, so option agreements, for those of you that don't know, uh, are, is essentially an agreement, to put it in its, its simplest format, is essentially an agreement between yourself and the vendor that at a certain point in time, you will purchase that property for a certain amount of money, normally triggered by a certain event. So normally how people have it is they'll have an option agreement over a plot of land uh, and the agreement will be, okay, Mr. Vendor, I will pay £100,000 for that land subject to, or, or actually you don't have to have it subject to it at all, it's an option. You say in 12 months' time, two years' time, whatever it may be, and I'll give you a pound for it now. Uh, the other £100,000 will, will happen in 12 to 18 months if we decide to purchase it. And then normally what happens in that 12 to 18 months is you would go and get planning permission or, or something else during that time uh, to try and add value to that property. So most people go and get planning permission. And at the point that they go to purchase that plot of land, it's not worth £100,000. It's worth maybe £200,000 um, because you've obtained the planning on it, etc. So at that point, you're paying £100,000 for a piece of land that actually is now worth £200,000. Um, and a lot of people, I think, are becoming wise to this agreement now. More and more vendors, uh, I think, are becoming aware that they're going to have to allow this kind of structure as well, um, because just putting a piece of land on the market isn't quite that easy anymore. It's There's got to be something tangible there. People aren't prepared to take the risk anymore. Uh, developers have become wiser. They, they don't want to be taking planning risk and things like that. Um, and it's not quite so competitive anymore that you have to take that planning risk. Uh, so I think more and more of the vendors are becoming aware as well, actually, that if they take option agreements, they're going to get a bit more money potentially for than if they just put it on the open market and sort of move forward. So that's probably the the kind of strategy that we're seeing the most of at the moment. Um, obviously, on your most recent one as well, uh, that there was obviously an option agreement at the very top and then a sort of sub-sale within that because it was an assignable option agreement. And then you obviously purchasing that option uh, from the middleman. And, and that's quite uh, a regular occurrence as well, because obviously with the, the abundance of property sources that we have now, more and more property sources are now becoming, again, quite savvy with how they do these deals. So rather than going for an option agreement, they're going for an assignable option agreement, which means that they can actually sell that option onto somebody else, which as a switched on property sourcer, you actually realize that you don't need to do anything in the middle other than kind of obtain that planning permission. Um, because if you're selling on the option, all that happens is the money just passes through you. You haven't got to go and find any money. It's the person you're selling to gives you the money and then you give it to the person you're buying from. And then you keep the profit in the middle. So you almost become just a safe place in the middle to hold all of this cash as it passes through and you just take your slice uh, as it travels through. But Again, I mean, there's huge chunks of money to be made there. You, you then, if you think in your scenario, Mark, you, you've taken on the development risk on that deal, um, but actually the person in the middle has probably made quite a decent profit, 
But actually, they haven't got to worry about the development. They've made their money now. They can go and do whatever they're going to do. I mean, obviously, in your case, they're, they're developers anyway, so they're working on different projects. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah. They, they had the choice, basically. They were creating their own pipeline. They had a choice where when they come to fruition, when planning comes to fruition, they decide to trigger the option and, and buy and develop themselves. Or they decide, actually, I'm too busy on other stuff. I'll just I'll just sell the carve this one out and and sell it. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm fascinated by it, but like you are on this. And um, for those of you who haven't actually got a copy of Property and SaaS Secrets book, I wrote a, a few chapters on exactly what Michael just said. And if you think from a, I think most people listening to this podcast are I'm very passionate about SaaS pensions, and you can do some fantastic things with SaaS like loan backs and buying property. But one of the things you can do is exactly as Michael just said, you can acquire purchase options. You you can rack and stack purchase options in your SaaS um, on commercial pieces of land and, uh, uh, um, uh, and, and get planning permission for residential. As long as you've got that assignability, because you wouldn't want to do a commercial to residential in your SaaS, or most people wouldn't, you'd have to exit close to the point of completion. So most people would develop in a normal structure. Um, so purchase options um, in your SaaS with assignability. And once you get planning, just assign it out to one of your SPV companies. Incredibly powerful strategy. And that's something Nigel and I are going to be doing more and more of um, at the moment. So are you seeing a, a, an increase in in appetite for those type of deals, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. And, and not just on that, on the lease option side of things as well. So coming away from sort of full-blown development for a second. Um, but lease options are becoming a more regular thing as well. I mean, actually, we're, we're negotiating a lease option on what I'm sat in right now. Um, so essentially exactly the same premise, but instead of uh, just agreeing a purchase price at a point in time, uh, you also agree kind of a rental as well. So normally people are using them on things like HMOs, for example. Um, so they're finding three, four-bed houses they're agreeing to buy those houses for maybe 100, 200, use the same figures again, let's say £100,000. Uh, they're agreeing to pay £500 a month. Now, again, if you're a really savvy investor, then you might actually be able to, or if you're a savvy negotiator, you might be able to negotiate that that £500 a month comes off the purchase price. Now, it depends on the vendor's circumstances because they've got mortgages to pay and everything else. But essentially what would happen is you might take that lease option for three to five years. During that three to five years, you then run the property as an HMO, obviously subject to uh, mortgages and things allowing for it. Um, but during that three to five years, you rinse all of the income out of that property. And then at come the end of the five years, for example, you've agreed to purchase that property for £100,000. You don't have to purchase it. It's an option. You can walk away. Uh, you've had the income. Let's say that the income over those five years was £60,000, for example. Um, if Again, if you've kind of saved even thirty grand of that money, you've actually then got your deposit made out of a house that you don't own just from the rental income um so that can be really powerful stuff as well and the, the alternative is at the end of five years if there's been decent capital growth um or if the hmo sort of attributed any value to it i mean that might be worth one hundred and fifty thousand pounds come the end of it you take a 75 percent bridging loan on that's hundred and twelve thousand five hundred. well you're only buying it for 100 so you've kind of got twelve thousand five hundred pounds of money that can be utilized for interest fees that kind of thing um, uh, are so, you saying, sorry to interrupt there, Michael, are you saying that the funding community will fund the equity increase with planning yeah. now achieved? Interesting. Yes, yeah. So both on lease options. Uh, so on lease options, they'll attribute any kind of 
value that's been added during that period of the lease option. Uh, and then on option agreements, if let's say you've purchased a plot of land for 100000 and it's now worth two hundred because you've got the planning permission, then yes, they'll attribute that increase. Uh, where we've seen it fall down a couple of times before is where people have tried to be almost they've overcomplicated it too much and they've actually negotiated it too well. Uh, and actually what happens is they agree to purchase the land for £100,000 and then actually the vendor goes and gets planning permission because they the purchaser has negotiated this incredible deal, but then they come to fund it and then it, it transpires that actually, well, you didn't pay for the planning permission, so you don't deserve the uplift in value. You've done nothing to, to gain this uplift in value. Um, so yeah, as long as you've got the planning permission, then yeah, you, you should be able to borrow against that uplift in valuation, uh, which can be a game changer. Oh, incredible in terms of leverage you can gain from that. So I'm guessing that it, it pays to have your uh, purchase or lease option agreements uh, studied carefully, um, prepared by a solicitor and doing the job properly. Um, you don't oh, want to spend two years of your life working on planning only to find there's a loophole. Well, that exactly that. And that, I think, again, that's that's something that people fall down on is that the the option agreement isn't, it just isn't airtight enough. All of a sudden you obtain planning on a plot of land and the vendor walks off and you've got a, a one sheet document that you can't do anything with because at the time you and the vendor said, oh, don't worry, we're friends. We won't get solicitors. It'll be fine. Um, and then they've in the back uh, and have walked off with a plot of land that's now doubled in value. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So there's some some of the, the the regular deals that you're starting to see coming through at the moment. Uh, flip that over. What are the most underused structures that that you're seeing? Where are people missing a trick? So the one where I think people are missing the biggest trick uh, is around deferred payments. And again, I've I've kind of become a massive advocate for this over probably the last six to nine months. Um, and it's because lenders are becoming more creative now they've had 12 months where they haven't been able to give any money out so they've all of a sudden gone right okay we need to lend some money um so these creative deals are becoming more and more palatable to them as long as obviously they can get the security so with a deferred payment i mean there's there's lots of different ways that you can do it whether it be on a development whether it be on a flip whatever it may be um let's take a development for example you may have a plot of land that's a million pounds you've agreed to purchase that land at a million pounds you're going to go and develop it everything else um, but the lender has said, okay, well, based on the figures, based on 65% loan to GDV, X, Y, Z, we can only lend you maybe £500,000 against the purchase price. So at that point, you've got to go and find an investor for £500,000 in order to top up what you're getting from the lending. Now, a lot of people and a, a lot of vendors are quite savvy. They, I keep using the word savvy, but it, it all comes down to that kind of the business mind uh, some aren't, don't get me wrong, some vendors have got no idea what they're sat on and they just want the money and they just want to walk away. But where I think people are missing a trick is actually if you find out you can only get £500,000 from the lender, why not have a chat with the vendor and say, well, look, I can only get £500,000 out day one. Why don't we look at some kind of vendor finance stroke deferred payment where actually that other £500,000 we defer until the end of the development. And actually, rather than me giving you £500,000, I'm going to give you £600,000. So you're going to make an extra £100,000 over the course of that development. And the vendor looks at it and they, they're going to weigh up their figures. Obviously, they're going to have conversations at home to see whether it works or not. But from their perspective, they might say, okay, well, actually, I'm going to make an extra £100,000 here, or they might even make an extra £200,000. Um, and it gets the end of the development, they get their money back. And obviously, they've, they've made, in theory, more money than had they just sold on the open market. 
Um, now, where the benefits for uh, you come in is that obviously you then haven't got to go and find an investor necessarily for £500,000. You might only need to find an investor for £100,000 just to kind of top a little bit of cash up. Um, from the vendor's point of view, again, because lenders are becoming more switched on and more creative, the vendor could also potentially take security on a second charge, for example. Um, obviously, the development lender is going to have first charge, but more and more development lenders are now allowing second charges. So from that perspective, uh, a vendor could look at that and say, well, okay, I've got a second charge. I'm going to make an extra 100000 £200,000 than I would have anyway. This, this could be worth looking at. Um, now, obviously, you've got to make sure it's financially viable because obviously if, if going and getting an investor at £500,000 is going to be cheaper, then great, do it that way. But not everyone has access to those investors. So it's just another route that people, I think, can take, just another thing to have in the toolkit. Um, I think actually pr probably the, the way to sign this bit off is anything in property goes, literally anything goes. As long as it's not illegal, anything goes. You can have any structure, you can have any anything, anything can be written into a contract or a transfer. Um, now, if your solicitor says, oh, I can't do that, or oh, I don't know how to do that, you're using the wrong solicitor. End of. Get, get a different solicitor. Um, and that is the difference between a residential conveyancer and a commercial solicitor. I've been a residential conveyancer. Um, there are some things that we do now that would have blown my mind when I was a residential conveyancer. Um, and that is the difference. Getting a good solicitor on board, they can write certain clauses into the contracts. You, you can literally have anything. Anything goes. Um, like I said, as long as it's legal, keep it legal. Um, but yeah, and anything can go. And I think that deferred payment element is, is just so underused. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm listening intently here and just playing back uh, the one we've just completed on. I might just give that a little bit of an airing as a, a case study. So yeah. pretty much exactly as you've just said, uh, this scenario, uh, the party wanted 400000 for a piece of land. And quite frankly, we didn't want to pay that. We could get to about three twenty-five, um, and we settled on a, a bit of an innovative structure where we said, "Okay, well, look, let's see if there's a middle ground here." And we ended up paying them, agreeing on a purchase price of three hundred and fifty, and that three fifty was structured where we'll legally complete with a hundred k, and we'll give you the other quarter of a million about nine months later. No interest charge on that uh, quarter of a million for nine months, but we'll give you a second charge security. Interesting. Not a first charge because we, we, we need a first charge. And the reason why we needed a first charge wasn't for development finance, although it could have been. It was actually because we wanted to, to use a loan back for our SaaS. So we could do a loan back for our SaaS at the value of the property, which is 350. So we could do a loan back at just under 350 to pay back the capital and interest. Um, we could have a second charge still available for the um, uh, uh, the deferred consideration. And that's only for a six to nine month period. Um, and then we can swap out the deferred consideration for private investors later down the line, should we wish, uh, or, or just run it out and use our own cash flow. That was a live example where we used it. It broke the deadlock. It got us a piece of land in prime Surrey. We can now do a, a new build commercial premises using exactly that technique. So anybody listening today of that uh, you know, bit of wisdom from Michael there on um, deferred consideration, massive, absolutely massive. 
So lots of opportunity around this this year, Michael. Um, what's your view on the the state of the nation, state of the market, and maybe some of the the big opportunities that uh, await us all? State of the nation, I'd say, bloody mess. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's been an interesting one, hasn't it? So it's kind of, it, I, I would say, at the moment, the biggest strategy and the one which I don't think enough people know about. Um, well, actually, I suppose there's two. So I suppose the first one is going to be commercial to residential. But that, I mean, that's been an opportunity for a huge period of time. Um, but I think that opportunity is going to become bigger. Obviously, there, there were the announcements yesterday that most of prime city of London is now going to become flats. Um, I think that's an interesting move. I think to, to turn central London offices into flats, um, I think we'll see that really start to push out. And I, I think... Uh, I mean, it was always going to happen in London because all of these huge, great big offices in London that nobody now wants to travel to, public transport obviously is just a, a cesspit of God only knows what now. Um, so people are naturally going to be working from home. Um, so I think it was always going to happen in London. So I think the interesting thing about that, though, is by it getting such national coverage of, oh, we're turning the, the central city of London into flats, I think we'll start to see a lot of other hubs move that way as well. Um, and I think we'll see a, a big push, again, a big push on local councils to kind of make sure that they're allowing as much as they can. Um, the biggest one that I see, and, and this is by far the biggest opportunity and one that I do not think anyone has picked up on particularly yet, and that is warehouses. So warehouses and industrial is by far the biggest opportunity. Um, and what I think will be the biggest opportunity is actually creating serviced warehousing. So taking these big 10,000 foot sort of commercial warehouse units uh, that are now vacant because businesses that were in there have either failed or they've moved to smaller premises or X, Y, and Z. There's these big, huge warehouses that just aren't being utilized. Um, and even some of the smaller warehouses aren't being utilized. But if you take a big 10,000 square foot one, for example, and you walk in there and you say, okay, well, it's just, it's a big open space. It's a blank canvas. So for fairly minimal effort, and I say minimal effort, I mean, obviously we're fairly involved, but you could chop that up fairly easily. Um, and we saw one in Peterborough fairly recently, well, I say fairly recently, a few years ago, where they took a big warehouse and they chopped it up into individual units and they got, I think, 30, 40 different units in there. Um, and don't get me wrong, they look industrial. But actually, the, the interesting thing about doing that is you're not just appealing to people that need warehousing space because you're appealing to photographers that need studios. You're appealing to small Amazon distributors because don't forget one of the biggest booms that we've seen during this last year is e-commerce. Well, all of these people who all of a sudden have this huge boom in e-commerce need somewhere to store all of their stuff. Um, and they don't want a big 10,000 square foot warehouse. They want a unit that they can go into and that they can grow into. And then they want to expand into maybe a bigger unit or maybe take on a couple of units. And th there's all of this different stuff that can happen. But from that perspective, if you can take a big, and again, the, the other thing as well is warehousing space is relatively cheap. To buy a, to buy a 10,000 square foot warehouse compared to buying a 10,000 square foot office, cost is, is just ludicrously cheaper. Um, but actually, the return on investment, if you took that office and created service offices, your yield would be phenomenal. We all know that. But actually, if you did exactly the same thing in a warehouse, your yield is going to be off the charts because the actual cost to get it all set up, 
the cost again the cost of splitting it all up inside all you've got to do is put essentially metal sheeting to split off all of the units and you can also obviously create mezzanine floors and things like that within the warehouses as well um so i think that will be one of the biggest opportunities the other reason i see it as one of the biggest opportunities is because and you and i know this mark uh, we had a big push between you and i uh sort of 12, 18 months ago to try and get as many lenders as possible on board for SaaS funding. Um, now, there still aren't enough lenders available for SaaS funding. We know this. Um, I think it's something that will, again, kind of come to the forefront over the next year or so. Um, obviously, all of the commercial units and things have, have been decimated over the last 12 months. Obviously, people are, are reluctant to lend into SaaSes because obviously it has to be commercially held. But one of the biggest pushes from SaaS lenders at the minute is that they will only lend on warehouses and industrial because it's the only commercial class that's available. Yeah. Offices are decimated, shops are decimated, cinemas are decimated. Every, every single industry has been decimated. Um, so that un unless you can get a blue chip, unless you've got a commercial unit with Primark in there, or unless you've got a commercial unit with Marks and Spencers or Sainsbury's or Little or one of one of these big big uh kind of names you, you're just not going to get anywhere and actually to be fair even if you have got a big name and i mean i know someone who had a unit with john lewis in there well john lewis obviously now are closing down as many units as they possibly can i think they've closed down most of them there they've closed down their big flagship store in peterborough um so the issue and i think they've closed their oxford street one down as well so the issue is is even the big names aren't safe um, so this is why shops, offices, that kind of thing, just just aren't of interest. But industrial and warehousing, you've got people who are welders, fabricators, um, you've got car showrooms, things like that, places that actually have flourished because they haven't had to close during COVID. Um, so, yeah, I think they're the kind of things that I think are going to boom over the next probably five years, I would say. Yeah, and as you say, those savvy investors and and savvy developers um, looking at that, and and with a lot of SaaS funds there acquiring in commercial, um, yeah. you can with with a, a warehouse strategy, you can build to order. It's only a three to four months timeline to put up yeah. a steel portal frame shed. Lots of opportunities, and we've got a, an opportunity for everybody, haven't we, Michael? Um, in September, we've announced we're doing the Property Developers Conference. Uh, which we're, we we're really excited about that. So I'll just, uh, for those of you who are listening live, I'll just put a copy of the, the link in the chat box. But if you follow uh, Michael or myself, we're going to be having this absolutely fantastic all-day uh, uh, conference on property development. And I'm sure that strategy is going to play a, a key role in that day as well. Really looking forward to that. Yeah, likewise. And I think it, it's, I think one thing I, I do want to say about the conference is we are trying to do things. Everyone always says, oh, we're trying to do things differently, but we really are trying to do things differently. And that's actually that we're, I think, between the two of us trying to cover the stuff that no one else really tries to cover during these conferences and actually trying to, yeah, just get as many people in to talk about as many different elements and actually different things that can go wrong as well. Because um, yeah. I don't think enough people talk about that. But yeah, I, I think it'll be, it'll be a great day. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that is a great free thing. as well, which makes it even better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing like sharing knowledge. That's a creation of shared value, isn't it, that, that we love? So, um, Absolutely. So, so you mentioned mistakes, and we've all made them, and uh, you know, it's a wise person who only makes them once. But what are the, the 
the, the frequent mistakes you see maybe new developers coming in or indeed seasoned uh, developers making and, and what sort of top tips might you give to, to help people alleviate those uh, those sticky problems? Yes, yeah, so I'd say the two biggest mistakes that we see, um, actually, no, let's go for three. So the first one is deal structure um, or relationship with the vendor or something like that, misunderstanding your relationship with the vendor, misunderstanding the deal structure, um, and then kind of getting into the process and it all falling down at legals because you thought you were doing one thing, someone else thought you were doing something else, we thought you were doing something else, the lender thought you were doing something else. That That's probably one of the biggest, and that, that just comes from naivety. Um, so that's probably the first one. The second biggest one we see is uh, over-exaggerating or over-inflation of end values. Um, and this is where I think a lot of people get sucked into, oh, I'll just check with the estate agents. I'll just check with the estate agents. The difficulty with checking end values with an estate agent is they're going to tell you it's higher because they want to win the business. Um, I've been an estate agent. I've been there. Um, I, I know exactly what the tactics are. and it is to overinflate because if you over-exaggerate size, it's more impressive and people are more drawn to it. Um, and they want to go for that because they are, oh, well, I'm going to make more money, not realizing actually it's going to be reduced and they're probably going to make less. Um, or it's just going to sit on the open market and it's all just going to come crumbling down because you're going to have interest costs and everything else piled up behind. So one of the things I would say with that is obviously to do your own research, your own comparables, everything else, but don't be shy about talking to valuers because you could go and instruct a valuation for yourself as well. Um, obviously, you'll have a valuation done by um, the lender as well, which obviously will come back with a figure. But I think it's that over-exaggeration of costs early on. The, the other thing as well that we find is because development finance is predominantly 65% of GDV, the biggest issue that we find is people so let's say they come to us and say, oh, the GDP is a million. And then we come back and say, okay, well, you can borrow 650 as long as it fits within loan to cost and all the other kind of formulas. Okay, you can borrow 650. It's split up like this, 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 and this. Oh, well, I need a little bit more. Okay, we'll have to go and get a private investor or mezzanine finance, unfortunately. Oh, oh, oh actually, uh, I forgot to say that the GDP is now 1.2. And you go, right, okay, what's what's that based on? Oh, well, I spoke to an estate and he said it was going to be 1.2. Right, okay. So then you go back to the lender, you say, right, okay, well, apparently it's 1.2. Okay, well, here's some amended figures. And then you go to valuation, obviously it comes back at a million. And you've, you've kind of wasted all of that initial time where you could have been looking for investors to then get to the point where the valuation is back, to then find out that the numbers you had in the first place were correct, uh, to then go, well, bugger, I haven't got long to find an investor here. And you kind of run around going, right, okay, I've got to try and get this money together. So that that's the second biggest mistake we see is just, the overinflation of those end numbers. Um, I think it's really important to get that GDV spot on as early on as possible. The third mistake is, again, it's around numbers and it's the build costs. And we see far too many people not instructing QS early on, not instructing uh, contractors early on because they, they kind of have it in their head that, well, we don't need a QS until later on down the line. We don't need a contractor until later down the, on, later down the line, rather. The issue you have there is people who have been through some of these mentorships, some of the development mentorships that are out there um, that, that aren't run as effectively, blow smoke, well, Mark's backside here, but that aren't run as effectively. They're just told to go off, oh, we'll just use the £1,000 a square foot. Well, 
okay, that's that's great. But the issue you've got there is building in Peterborough might be a thousand pound. Sorry, thousand pound a square meter, not thousand pound a square foot. Might be a thousand pound a square meter. But building in prime central London might be two and a half, three and a half thousand pound a square meter. What's included in that thousand pound a square meter? Are they going to do the landscaping? Are they, will they do the fencing? Will they put the roads in? Will they put the utilities in? Does that cover the salt? Does that cover the section 106? And it's all these different things where, so a developer might come forward with a million pounds of development costs and they might come and say, right, okay, well, here's the build cost of a million pounds. Oh, we've worked it on, let's say, £100 a square foot or £1,000 a square metre, whatever it might be. And you kind of go, okay, well, have you got a breakdown of the build costs? Oh, well, I think it'll be something like this. And then sort of scribble down some numbers. And then you get through to the QS and the QS just rips it up. You just go, it's just useless. Where have you factored in this? Where have you factored in that? And it, I think one of the, the biggest pieces of advice I can give people is engage a QS as early as possible. Um, and there are plenty of QSs out there. I know Mark's got a good one who he can recommend um, who will just do that sense checking of those costs. I mean, it, yes, it's going to cost you a couple of hundred pounds. It is, without a shadow of a doubt, it is going to cost you money, but you have to speculate to accumulate. And I think too many people come into development thinking, oh, well, I just won't spend any money and it, it'll right. be all right, it'll be fine. I use those two words, simulate and anticipate. And, and you've got to simulate and anticipate that the RICS Red Book value, as you said, and also yeah. the monitoring surveyor, as you said. Um, yeah. The combined costs of both of those is probably, depending on the size of the project, could be anywhere from three to £10,000. So why wouldn't you spend a few few hundred, few thousand pounds getting a QS to do the job right? Because ultimately, that's only the first hurdle, isn't it, of getting into yeah. the deal? If you don't get that right, you won't get into the deal in the first place because it won't be no, fun. Exactly. I think absolutely no. spot on there. Spot on. Um, I mean, yeah, Nigel spent a lifetime creating the Equa IDA. I mean, that's version 59 now. But it, it creates that those tolerance levels. It's prescriptive. It's the checklist. And, and then, of course, cash flowing it to make sure you understand exactly the amount of yeah. private capital you need in there to service that because the banks won't fund everything, will they? Um, so there are certain things that uh, need to be included as well. Good. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's there's lots of difference in numbers. Yeah, lots of things, uh, aspects of risk and, and opportunity. And uh, I have a feeling we should do a part two of this uh, podcast. We're running out of time now, Michael. <laughs> so uh, let's um, let's think about how we can continue to add lots of value to, to the listeners with uh, uh, with a version two. But um, in the meantime, um, I'm sure people have got lots of questions for you and maybe even uh, deals that they'd like to talk to you. So what's the best way of people to uh, get in contact with you? Yeah, so there's multiple different ways. Um, so predominantly social media is, is probably the easiest way to get hold of me. Um, but alternative, if, if you just go to the website, which is thepropertyfinancecollective.co.uk, um, our email is on there, telephone number is on there. You can submit inquiries through the website. Um, as of well, the point of recording, uh, our new website goes live next week, I think. So, um, yeah, that, that's probably the easiest way. Um, and, yeah, email, telephone number, everything is on the website. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, really appreciated you giving us what, what was a very personal insight into your story. Lots of lessons there on you know, what people need to take into consideration when they're starting a business. Um, also, how you've grown your brokerage to be a hugely successful organisation in this country. 
Nigel and I know that because we're the recipients of the highest quality service that you're providing. And and it just gives us that route to assurance to get into the deal. And uh, well, we were out last week, weren't we, on the on a, that, that development and uh, popping a drone up in the sky and, and really looking at it from all angles. So maybe we'll share some... Uh, some images of that in the in the weeks and months to come as that development evolves. Yes, yeah. Well, I hope it'll be hope it'll be out next week. Fingers crossed. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Michael, thank you so much. And and everybody, if you've got any queries, just drop Michael a note. Um, and uh, you know he, he's done a fantastic job for us. Michael, thanks again for sharing the wisdom and insight of the market. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Property Portfolio Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that it inspired you on the next leg of your journey. If you've got any questions or comments, why not reach out to us at our Facebook page, Equa Academy. Also, don't forget to register for free access to hundreds of property development videos and templates over at equaacademy.co.uk and we'll see you in next week's episode. Thank you.